A quick note before we begin. While the National Restaurant Association is committed to allowing restaurants to serve people as safely and quickly as possible, no advice can guarantee prevention of COVID-19 or other respiratory illnesses. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Order Up podcast. I'm Michael McGinnis. This episode will focus on advocacy surrounding COVID as it relates to the restaurant industry. I'll speak first with our very own Sean Kennedy. Sean is the Executive Vice President for Public Affairs at the National Restaurant Association and, as such, has been on the front lines of advocacy on behalf of the restaurant industry since COVID began. Sean, welcome. Great to be with you. And uh, where do we find you today? I am working uh, remotely like the rest of uh, so many people right now. Uh, I am at my home. Can you remember first hearing about the coronavirus outbreak and uh, what was your initial reaction? It was interesting. We started it, um, it was in early March, and we had heard isolated stories about a virus. There was still a lot of debate as to what was its uh, mortality rate, where does it relate to the flu, how uh, contagious is it, things like that. We were hosting a public affairs conference, so we had about 500 restaurant owners and operators in town, and we were sending them to the Hill uh, to discuss what we thought were our key priority issues for the calendar year. Uh, we told everybody almost as an afterthought, by the way, if you get questions on coronavirus, feel free to remind them that we are such a healthy and safe industry and that uh, we're going to do everything we can on behalf of our customers. Uh, but we really thought that that was going to be the extent of it. Sean, when did you realize that coronavirus was going to be such a challenge for restaurant owner operators? So Friday the 13th of March, we saw a number of restaurant owners were telling us that wedding parties, graduation parties, large groups were canceling their reservations, but they were still very comfortable with walk-ins. So people were still eating lunch and dinner in tables of two or four, uh, but there was a little concern. Um, and then on March 14th, Saturday, Hoboken, New Jersey, was the first city to shut down restaurant operations at midnight. Uh, and that spread nationwide probably within 48 or 72 hours. And it was at that point that we obviously realized this is not just a, uh, a hurricane that's in one locality. This is a hurricane shutting down the entire industry uh, suddenly and nationwide. And since then, you and your team have been busy with advocacy on behalf of the industry. Can you give us a recap of what's happened on a federal legislative level since the whole thing began? So when restaurants were shut down on March 14th, we recognized the severity and the enormity of the situation. And the National Restaurant Association sent a proposal to Congress on March 18th, outlining the scope the really unlikely course that this industry was going to be facing, and a few concrete steps on how best to resolve it. Congress is in the middle of passing a $2 trillion coronavirus response bill, and they created a program called PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. It's a well-intentioned program. We realized quickly it was not going to be the solution that our unique industry with our unique business model and our really uncertain path to recovery was going to have. So we spent a lot of time, probably more time than we would have liked, just trying to fix that. Uh, the program has been fixed, but we still have a lot of challenges in front of us, and we have a lot of work left to do uh, that we're going to need Congress's help on. So in what ways 
has that legislation helped businesses? And well, let's start with that. Uh, Maybe a specific example or two of how uh, restaurants have been aided by the, uh, the PPP program. So the Paycheck Protection Program is designed to allow restaurants to continue paying their employees even when they're closed. Uh, and they can use 75% of a loan for that purpose. And then the other 25% can be used for things like rent or utilities. If they meet the requirements of the program, the whole loan will be forgiven. The problem that we have with it is the PPP assumed that this would be an eight-week storm. It assumed that uh, this pandemic would run for about eight weeks all of America would be shut down, and then after a day, after eight weeks, the lights would come on, the doors would open, and life would come back to normal again. And that's really the biggest – that's where the challenge of the restaurant industry really comes in. We're going to be the last industry to recover from this pandemic, and so we need a program that reflects that. And the PPP, as it was designed, really didn't accomplish that. So what are you hearing from operators in terms of the, the challenges they've had both in terms of just their operations in general, but also in using whatever legislation has been passed uh, on their own behalf. There are a few challenges that are facing restaurants right now. You start off with the obvious one. Uh, Restaurants are beginning to reopen on a state-by-state basis. We are not seeing anything approaching a consistent standard. Uh, Some cities are still at 25%, some are at 50%, some are allowing full 100% dining. So restaurants, particularly operators that have multiple facilities that cross state lines, are adapting quickly to that. But if you are reopening after 85 days of being shut down at only 25% capacity, you're actually spending – you're losing more money now because you're no longer just a ghost kitchen. You now have to hire staff to do wait staff. You're dealing with cleaning and hygiene and training to make sure that your customers and those employees are safe. Uh, And to do that – with only 25% of your customers coming in the door, really makes it tough for those financials to line up. Is there any legislation in limbo at the moment? And then as a follow-up to that, what kind of future legislation could potentially be proposed or take place? Going back to March 18th, the National Restaurant Association plan was to call for a restaurant and food service industry recovery fund. And it was basically a fund that recognizes that the nation's restaurants are the second largest private sector employer in this country. This is a federal crisis that's going to need a federal solution. Our estimates right now are that the restaurant industry will lose about $240 billion in revenue by the end of this year. Uh, that is the ballpark amount that we are looking for from a recovery fund. Congress has been really reluctant to do anything approaching uh, industry-specific recovery funds. They did it for the airlines. We are pushing really hard that we're going to need it on this one. There are other ways in which Congress can help, too, though. We're looking at things like liability protections. If a restaurant follows all of the state rules, if they are doing every effort to ensure that their guests and their customers are safe, can they be protected from drive-by litigation Uh, from someone who says they got coronavirus from a restaurant. What can we do about rent forbearance? What can we do to sort of protect those restaurants that are just getting slammed with rent payments uh, where there's no income coming in? And then last, what are ways in which the state or federal governments can work with us to allow us to get new streams of revenue? So things like off-premise sales of alcohol have been absolutely critical for a lot of restaurants as we try to find some way just to keep our doors open and to keep some money coming in. 
taking a quick break from our conversation with Sean and for more insight into how legislation is affecting specific operators. We heard from Little Greek Fresh Grill CEO Nick Voinovich from his home in Florida about how the PPP has helped his business stay afloat. So it was just definitely, unfortunately, a once in a lifetime kind of experience where you have a, a pandemic and an economic crash going on at the same time. And, you know, obviously, you know, the health is first, but then, you know, you have a business to run as well. And we have franchisees that aren't really sure what to do and how to handle it. So it was definitely quite, quite devastating. And then, you know, fortunately, the PPP thing came in and that kind of saved the day. We were discussing, you know, how do you get on board? It was very disappointed. We only had five out of 43 locations get financed on the first round. And I, I kind of felt like it was, um, you know, some people call it the Hunger Games. You know, who, who are the survivors who can make it? And it kind of felt like, well, the big boys who had connections were getting the banks. You know, I, I was banking with uh, two, two national banks, and, and they wouldn't even return my, you know, phone calls. And I'm kind of, I know who they are. I know them, you know, personally. So it's very disappointing on the first round. But fortunately, they passed the second round, and then all of our franchisees and corporate got funded. And that really saved the day. So at the same time, sales started slowly creeping up. And we saw the PPP money coming in, and that really kind of saved them. We told our people, do not lay people off. If you have to reduce hours, do it, but keep everybody on full. And on my stores and corporately, we kept everybody full pay, full staff. That was CEO Nick Voinovich from the Little Greek Fresh Grill. So glad they're still with us. We all need a little Greek in our lives. Now back to my conversation with Sean to discuss what's in store for legislation going forward. We hear about the the possibility of a second stimulus package. Is there anything inside of that that specifically addresses the restaurant industry? We are certainly going to try. Our biggest concern is whether, as we get closer to an election year, Congress is able to come together to pass bipartisan legislation. It's getting in tougher and tougher every week that we get closer to November. The things that we'll continue to push for, uh, the basics, obviously, the Restaurant Recovery Fund protections on basic liability protections for businesses as they're beginning to open. We're going to press for tax credits for all this new PPE equipment, all these new investments uh, in protective equipment and training that restaurants have to make in order to reopen amidst uh, capacity restrictions. They're going to make it really tough for us to have any revenue. So we're going to really push for this, but it's getting a little tighter every week. What are some of the resources for owner-operators that are continuing to look for guidance in finding out about programs that might be available to them? Well, certainly our website, restaurant.org, has a lot of resources for owners and operators on what are the current programs, uh, what guidance, what are the frequently asked questions that we've seen. I would also certainly recommend people check out restaurantsact.com. And that's our grassroots advocacy website. And that is where, that's the portal where if a restaurant owner or operator wants to make sure that their voice is heard in Washington, uh, they can go to that website, they can sign up. We give you legislative updates, but more importantly, we use your information when we are pushing with Congress to say, this is why the restaurant industry is suffering in a unique way and why we need a unique solution. You and your team work on a federal level, but you also uh, have deep partnerships with the state restaurant associations. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've been working with them and what their role has been in helping the restaurants in terms of both uh, just practical support and advocacy? Our partnership with state restaurant associations has been absolutely critical 
to every success that we have secured during this pandemic. The SRAs, they are the boots on the ground. And these CEOs and these teams are the ones that are working with those independent operators uh, every day. They're hearing about this. The relationship we have with the SRAs, we were doing uh, almost daily calls with our 52 state restaurant association partners, our 50 states in D.C. and Puerto Rico, educating them on what we think is happening in Washington, but more importantly, getting input on what are the challenges and what are the best asks that we can be making. And then most importantly, uh, the biggest challenge in Washington, particularly during a pandemic with social distancing, is how do you get Congress's attention and their ability to fire up the masses and to get a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails into Capitol Hill on behalf of this industry, on behalf of our agenda, have been absolutely critical to everything that we've been working for. This is Michael McGinnis with a quick message from the National Restaurant Association. This discussion is just a small part of what the association offers members year-round. I encourage you to visit restaurant.org slash membership to see a snapshot of everything we offer. Again, visit restaurant.org slash membership to learn more. Thanks for listening. There's a, a lot of different business models within the industry. Can you talk a little bit about how some of the business models are more challenged than others? You have all sorts of different categories of dining from fast casual to fine dining, et cetera. Uh, can you talk about how this has affected the broader categories on an individual level? Well, before the pandemic, every operator could have a different concept and they, could, they all had a, a reasonable shot of success because they were competing for customers that wanted to dine in a restaurant. Uh, and that sounds like a pretty basic concept. But after March 14th, that was turned on its head where suddenly everybody is either shut down or they're allowed to operate only on takeout and delivery. Some restaurants could make that transition easily. Some restaurants swore they would never do a takeout model. Uh, they had dishes that were designed. Uh, they were beautiful. They were delicious, but they were designed to be served to the customer within 10 minutes, five minutes of uh, being plated. So suddenly you have a lot of restaurants that are coming to us saying, we need guidance just on how long is this going to be working for? What do we do about our relationships with you know, third-party delivery companies, things like that? Um, so we've certainly seen a lot of consolidation or concentration on how do you make meals that can travel well, that can carry well. And then as we reopen, but as we reopen to 25% capacity cuts, we see that we've got more restrictions where some restaurant operators are saying they want to make sure that their menus are more simple, that they can buy fewer ingredients, that they can do anything to try to keep those margins close enough where they can stay open and survive things until we move into full capacity nationwide. I think a lot of people don't understand the margins in the restaurant industry. Can you speak a little bit about that and uh, why the model of returning to a 25 or 50% capacity, even 75% capacity could be challenging for our operators? One of the biggest misconceptions that we see on Capitol Hill is people that say, hey, I was in this restaurant last night and it was packed. Um, they must be killing it. And the answer is, 
for a restaurant to begin to turn a profit, they have to be packed basically every night of the year. They certainly need to be packed during the high season, this period that we're in right now, Michael. This pandemic could not have come at a worse time for the restaurant industry because this it's during these periods that we make enough revenue that we can still stay open when tourism is down and when fewer people are walking in the door. Uh, so this has absolutely been devastating during the high season for us to take these kinds of things. In general, your average restaurant is we are sending for every dollar that we take in, we're pushing about 95 cents out the door. And that's our suppliers. That's our farmers. Uh, that's the people washing the tablecloths. Uh, that's our workforce. It's suppliers. It is tradesmen. We are giving so much back to the community. And so when a restaurant shuts down for a short period of time or if they shut down for good, that impact is felt immediately in a city or in a neighborhood. I think this is true for all of us. We love our neighborhood restaurants, the favorite table, favorite server, the wonderful smell of the kitchen and anticipation of a great meal. For me, one of those places is Lebanese Taverna. This group is near and dear to my heart as a majority of their locations are by my home and I'm just a huge fan. Great food and they make you feel like family when you visit. I spoke with their executive vice president, Grace Shea. Here's what she had to say about what COVID has been like for them. Sure, it's actually been very interesting because we have four or you can even say five different segments of the food business. So we have our full service restaurants, which were um, affected the most by COVID-19. Um, all of the full service restaurants were closed for the first eight weeks until we received um, some PPP funding. So they had no sales for two months. And those are larger restaurants anywhere from a hundred, you know, larger for us, starting from 100 seats to 500 seats. We have Baltimore, Tyson's Galleria, Washington, D.C., uh, and then a couple in Arlington as well. So those were definitely the, mo the most affected. Obviously, people were not dining in and, um, and even takeout for such a large location really didn't make sense at that time. Then we have our quick service, which are called LebTabs. They're um, abbreviated name, abbreviated menu. Now, obviously, that we have a, a whole kitchen that is not a storefront for our catering um, operation. So we've turned that into a ghost kitchen. So, yeah, so now it's in a location where we don't have a, lo uh, a Lebanese taverna. So we've turned it into a LebTav. And so people can order through the delivery uh, apps to get food from there. And then we've also started neighborhood deliveries uh, or neighborhood drops where places that are an hour away that know Lebanese Taverna, they'd get their neighbors to order and we'd come and do one drop to 20 different people. And uh, first, it's great because people are excited to have you. And that's always good for your ego. Um, and then, you know, it's been good because it's, it's revenue. Um, so much so that we are here in, you know, the DC area and we are doing a delivery next week to the Delaware beaches to Bethany and Rehoboth. And it's quite a trek and, and, and the following week to Richmond and Williamsburg. But it's, um, it's something for us to do and people are excited about it. And, you know, if nothing else, it's great marketing and, um, Again, it's one of those things where if people are excited to have you an hour or two hours away, you must be doing something right. So you might as well use it. Yeah, for sure. 
I know you guys sought some relief from PPP. What was it like actually navigating the loan application process for that? So, yeah, so the first round, you know, you're sitting there, you're, you're waiting for it to be passed, and then it's passed, and then, okay, what do you need to do? And then application, the first application came out, and then they're like, no, wait a minute, that's not going to be the application. The next day, another application comes out with different terms, and, and so it was just really stressful. And, and, and when you have to fill it out for more than one location, you know, we were really scrambling trying to do all the applications. We were very lucky that um, we had a bank that was um, working with us. And even though, you know, they didn't know what they were doing, so it was confusing for everyone. So there was no security in it because they're like, we can't even get on. We don't know how to do it. It was very much a, a mess. That being said, the application came through and there was a little bit of an exhale. We got our number, which is what everyone, you know, that's the thing you want is a number. And um, it was on a Friday night. I remember it very well, like seven o'clock. And that was one of the best weekends I had had in a few weeks at that time. Well, I'm exhaling right now. I mean, <laughs> it, it has been quite a roller coaster. And um, the first couple of weeks were just paralyzing almost, not knowing you know, what the business was going to look like, what was going to happen personally for, you know, your own family and, and the world, you know, uh, it was, it was very scary. So, uh, and it's been progressive since then, then we had to deal with PPP and the rush, you know, on the first round. And, you know, we're very lucky we got into the first round, but that week was so stressful. You know, we didn't know if we uh, were going to get it or if we're not. And, so that was a that was a whole different kind of stress. Um, but then we got it. That was Grace Shea, Executive Vice President of the Lebanese Taverna Group, really rooting for her and her team there. My go-to order there, by the way, is to start off with the grape leaves and hummus and then get a mixed grilled kebab with lamb, kafta, and chicken. For some final thoughts on advocacy and legislation, we come back now to my conversation with Sean Kennedy. You mentioned earlier the airline industry and that they got specific legislation. Tell us how the restaurant industry compares to some of the other large industries that are also suffering uh, in this time. And hopefully we can give the listeners a little bit of a sense of just how large of an effect this has on the economy overall. So I used to work in the airline industry for eight years before joining the National Restaurant Association. Uh, and I can tell you exactly how it played out. The trade association that represents the airlines has 10 members, seven passenger airlines and three cargo airlines. And they basically took over a conference room during the pandemic with social distancing. And they notified every member of Congress as to the unique challenge that they were facing. And if you are an airline CEO, you're a bit of a, of a demigod here in Washington, D.C., and you have relationships with senators that your average restaurant owner isn't going to have. Uh, and when you, your power is concentrated in 10 people, you can really try to cut a pretty impressive deal. How are we different? We don't have uh, a restaurant CEO that's as significant, perhaps, as an airline CEO, but we have volume. We have restaurants in every city, in every neighborhood in the country. They employ people. You have customers who rely on them, who are using these restaurants every day, who are passionate about their neighborhood. If we can harness that, we've done a good job. There's so much more potential. If we can harness that collective power and channel that into change in Washington, 
we really can get a lot done on behalf of this industry. It's one of the great challenges that we're doing here in Washington, but it's really exciting for us because we see how much potential is there. So if we don't have the concentrated power of the airline industry, what do you lead with when you're talking to folks on Capitol Hill? I promise you that everyone listening to this podcast has a restaurant in their neighborhood that's their favorite that they've gone to at least once this week. And people relate to that. We are the nation's second largest private sector employer. Healthcare is number one. We are number two. And there is no industry that's lost more jobs and more revenue than the restaurant industry. Uh, And when you lead off with that and you say the nation's second largest employer has lost more jobs than anybody else as a result of this pandemic, people shift and people begin to listen. But a lot of it has also been paired with everything that's happening from our grassroots front. Uh, We have gotten so much more engagement because people realize what an existential challenge is facing the industry right now. If there's one piece of information or data that you currently don't have that you would like to have in order to better advocate for the industry, what do you think that would be? What everyone always asks on Capitol Hill is what percentage of restaurants will never reopen? What percent are going to just give the keys back to the bank? And it's a fascinating question for me because it, it, it bumps up against the psychology of your average restaurant owner. So many restaurant owners, this is their dream. They have always wanted to be an entrepreneur in the hospitality industry and have a place that they can call their own and bring people in. And what they tell us is we're going to find a way to make this work. They'll acknowledge that it's really tough to do that with 25% capacity. They'll acknowledge they're not sure what they're going to do if there's another spike in coronavirus and restaurants are shut down again for some period of time. They don't think like that. They think, how are we going to make it through the next 48 hours or two weeks or two months? And it's that passion and that scrappiness that we're really trying to communicate and convey with policymakers. Uh, for us, we, you, you can't do a poll on, are you going to close down? Because every restaurant operator is going to say, I'm going to find a way to make this work until the bank pries the keys out of my hand. And it's what makes this such a fascinating and, and fulfilling industry to represent in Washington. Sean, I would imagine that During normal times, you spend a lot of time in face-to-face meetings uh, on Capitol Hill. How do you and your team do your job, and how have you adjusted your strategy uh, during a time when you can't meet with uh, people face-to-face? The pandemic has been remarkable from a Washington perspective uh, when you are trying to engage and advocate before a body that won't let you visit with them face-to-face anymore. To run a winning campaign in Washington, you really need three things. You need a compelling narrative, you need a vocal constituency, and you need people that policymakers trust. Uh, For the compelling narrative, we've got that. People want their favorite restaurants, not to profit, but just to survive right now. We've got that. On the third one, people that are trusted, we've got a great Washington-based team who have got such fantastic relationships on both sides of the aisle, and that they know that they have the trust of members of Congress, and it's a two-way street. So it really moves into that vocal constituency. We rely heavily on our grassroots network. But I'll tell you this, Michael, we used to measure success of a grassroots campaign 
by thousands, by 6,000, 7,000 for a successful campaign. When we started our grassroots campaign for a restaurant recovery plan, our goal was 100,000 phone calls and emails to Capitol Hill in five days. And we were convinced that that would be a stretch. We hit that goal in less than 24 hours. Uh, We briefly had to shut down the server because we were getting so much contact from our grassroots network, from people who had never even been a part of our network. They were going to restaurantsact.com. They were signing up. They were learning more, and they were engaging. And we're at over 450,000 today. And those are people who are new to this industry. They could be employers. They could be employees. They could just be people who love their favorite restaurant, but they want to make sure their voice is heard. They recognize the challenge that we're in. And again, this is where our relationship with our state restaurant associations is so critical. Those independents are members of their SRAs. They're getting the latest intel, but more importantly, we're harnessing their passion and their voice to be that the, the, the third component of that winning campaign. And it's the only way that we're going to be able to continue making our voice heard uh, in Capitol Hill. So, Sean, last question and uh, two parts. One, what has been your uh, team's greatest success so far during the pandemic? And number two, what would you tell an owner-operator who is uh, looking to you and your team for some help in this tough time and is struggling to keep the lights on right now? Without a doubt, the number one success we've had has been keeping the restaurant industry and the challenges facing this industry on the front burner of Congress, in the media, and at state and local governments. This pandemic is affecting everybody. It's affecting so many industries. It's affecting so many families, and we can never lose sight of that. But it also means that if you are advocating on behalf of one particular industry, like we are, you've got a lot of competition. And you have folks that are chasing the same reporters, the same members of Congress, the same governors and mayors saying, I need a unique solution. We have been able to sort of break through that where the first thing people say when they're told, uh, what do you miss the most about uh, the pandemic and these new restrictions? So many people respond with, I miss going out and enjoying a restaurant. So we've been working really hard just to capitalize that and to make sure that when every time policymakers are doing legislation, that they're thinking about our industry. They're thinking about the impact on owners and operators. And then as far as next steps for those guys, we are talking to owners, operators, employees every single day. And we are hearing firsthand the challenges that they're going through. And it, it, it really drives us to push even harder for change. There's so many ways in which Congress can make small changes to help the industry. And we're going to push for those. But we also need to not lose sight of the fact that we need big solutions as well. We need a restaurant recovery fund. We're going to continue pushing every opportunity there is at the federal level, at the state level, and the local level for as long as it takes on behalf of this great industry. Sean Kennedy, thank you for your time. Thanks. Thanks for joining us at Order Up, the National Restaurant Association podcast for the restaurant community. We'll update every week on Fridays. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform like Spotify or iTunes or visit us at restaurant.org slash podcasts. This episode produced by Dante32. This is Michael McGinnis with a quick message from the National Restaurant Association.
This discussion is just a small part of what the National Restaurant Association offers members year-round. Whether you came here through our legislative work, with policy and advocacy, or our reopening guidance for restaurants, I encourage you to visit restaurant.org membership to see a snapshot of everything we offer. Again, visit restaurant.org membership to learn more. Thanks for listening.